You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Um, what a wonderful picture from Revelation 5 that we, that we heard read. Thanks, Danny, for reading it so wonderfully for us. Such a wonderful picture of the Lamb who everyone is worshipping, And how is he described? He's described as the lamb who had been slain. Now, we've spent this week considering the lamb who had been slain at the cross. And I want to say congratulations, well done on making it to this final day, this final session of Summit. We've been on this journey, haven't we? Seeing the cross at the center. And we've been trying to let God's word help us make sense of and understand it. Um, We've considered um, the frame and the foundations uh, that it's by his blood that sins are dealt with. And as we've considered looking inside, inside the house, 
that that also deals with our guilt and our shame, that we are declared righteous. Um, we, we trust in Jesus for our life and we continue to live through him, confident in the work of the cross to restore and to maintain our relationship with God. I'm going to pray for us as we continue um, and finish up our, our time thinking about the cross uh, for this week. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that we have uh, more time to keep wrestling with your word and understanding uh, the cross of Christ. Please help us today in this last session, even with our tiredness, please help us to hear you speak to us. Soften our hearts that we may be transformed by your word through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so the question that we're going to be asking today is, what do we expect for the Christian life? Why is this the life that we have been freed for? We talked about being freed last night. Why is this the life that we've been freed for? Why have we been saved from sin and shame and what is it all for? What should we expect it to look like? And the first point I want to make is we are saved for Jesus. Um, some of the language throughout the New Testament particularly, which talks about what it means for us to be saved, is redeemed or redemption. We saw that in the Revelation passage um, and we see in, in some other passages that um, that we are saved for Jesus because he redeemed us. On the screen, Titus chapter 2, um, you looked at this in the, in the seminars yesterday. Um, it starts off by Jesus who, that's, he, that's who it's talking about, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What we see here is that Jesus is giving himself um, and in so doing, he redeems a people for himself, for his own. Now, redemption, if you think about it, redemption implies a transferal of possession um, and a cost associated with that. Now, in the Old Testament, if you, if you look at this idea of redemption throughout the Old Testament, um, I know you might have looked at it in the seminars yesterday, uh, yesterday, um, but some other examples. The Israelites were redeemed from slavery in Egypt into um, God's promised land and to life uh, flowing with milk and honey. And other examples, for example, the book of Ruth, Boaz redeems Ruth from shame and a position where there's no prospects to a position of honor um, with a lasting legacy. But what about the cross of Jesus and his work? What does that do for us in redemption? I'm going to do a quick survey um, through a few passages. I know you looked at some other passages yesterday. Um, we're going to look at a few other ones. Up on the screen, um, Ephesians chapter 1. Um, a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 1. Let's think about what, um, what, are, we, we, what are we redeemed from and what are we redeemed for? Um, let's have a look. In him... That's in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 1, we see we're redeemed from sin to be forgiven, united in Christ for his glory. Let's look at another passage, Galatians 3. Um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Here we see in Galatians 3 that it's redemption from the curse of the law to the promises of the Spirit. And our last passage that we'll look at this morning for for this um, exercise, Colossians 1, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light. Now that's quite quick. We've looked through three passages very quickly. Um, I know you've done a similar thing already. But to summarize um, from these passages, as well as from what you've been looking at in the seminars, at the cross, Jesus redeems us from wickedness, from sin, curses, darkness, from slavery, from futility, from death. And he redeems us to purity, forgiveness, fulfillment of God's promises to his kingdom, um, to, to righteousness. And he's doing this all for himself. All for his own glory and honor. Because he bought us with his blood. And so we belong to him. In Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is speaking to some church leaders, and this is what he says to the church leaders up on that side. He says, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul can say this, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And so those who are redeemed belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. Now we need to recognize why this is significant. That our redemption is not ultimately for ourselves, is it? Yes, we are redeemed. Yes, we are what is purchased. And yes, it is for our good. We've seen how good it is over the last few nights. But ultimately, it is for Jesus. Because he is the center of it all, isn't he? We don't want to go home from a conference on the cross thinking that it was all about me. Yes, the cross is the best news for us. But remember what we looked at on the first day, the Copernican Revolution, where everything changed. And what we saw, actually much bigger, much better, much more significant than any Copernican Revolution is the cross, and right at the center, the turning point of everything, is Jesus crucified. He's the one in the middle, 
And so when we start talking about our cross-redeemed lives, we need to think first, focused on Jesus. He's the one at the center. This is He's the one for whom it is all for. And so how do we live? How do we live for Jesus, belonging to him? We need to look to him, uh, both to him as the person, as well as to his work on the cross. We need to understand life following him. And what we see as we do that is we see the cross-shaped life. If you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a few passages from 1 Peter chapter 2. And so open up your Bibles or scroll through there onto your phones. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ suffered for us, leaving an example for us to follow. And that example, specifically in 1 Peter 2, is the example of living a godly life, even in the face of wrong and even in the face of suffering. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's that example. We've heard it in the passion narrative, haven't we? We read the passion, passion narrative on the first day, and we heard uh, Simon perform it for us. Think about the false accusations of the Jewish leaders. The injustice and the spinelessness of Pilate. Think about the mocking and the flogging from all the soldiers. The insults and derision from passers-by. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Think of the shame of the cross itself. Ultimately, even being forsaken, Jesus suffered. Look again in 1 Peter 2, the following verse, verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled the insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Throughout all of that suffering, Jesus was without sin. He was perfect, righteous, godly, gracious. When he was up on the cross, remember what he said? He cared for his mother. He made sure that John would look after her. He prayed, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He was still caring for and serving and ministering, even at that point of suffering and death. He comforted the thief onto his side. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He was so gracious. Even amidst all that suffering, he lived the perfect life. Even suffering. 
But his life of suffering didn't start on the cross. It began way before that. And I'm going to get you guys all to do some thinking yourself. It's a different, a bit of a different type of thinking, but think, chat with the person next to you, and there's a question on the screen. What examples of suffering can you think of in Jesus' life before he went to the cross? Think through Jesus' life. What examples of suffering can you think of that Jesus went through on the way to the cross? Have a chat to the person next to you. If, if you're struggling, just flick through um, either Matthew, Mark, Luke or John and see if there's any, any examples there that, that might stand out to you. It might be a hard question. That's okay. We can think hard. Hey, let's, um, let's come back together. The tech team are amazing, aren't they? Just magically works again. Um, uh, I would love to hear what, what you guys are talking about, but I think for the sake of time, and I know it's a bit of a big room to be shouting out at, uh, let me tell you some of the things that came to my mind as I, I was thinking through this question. Think about Jesus' birth. Um, in Luke chapter 2, it says, um, this is talking about Mary giving birth to him, and and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room, no guest room available for them. He's, he's, he's born into a stable, a, a dirty place where animals are because there's no room for him. Even at his birth, he's already starting to suffer. Like I think about, about the clean hospitals that my kids were born in, and, and I'm very thankful for that. But Jesus, born in this way. And then in his, in his infancy, uh, in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 2, it says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and when they, um, some people giving him gifts, um, and they said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. As an, as an infant, Jesus with his family is forced into exile because people want him dead. Even as a child, he's already starting to suffer. And the beginning of his ministry, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 13, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. I heard someone talk about this, actually, being tempted by Satan. He begins his ministry with temptation and and suffering. And then in Luke chapter 4, what does it say? Um, They got up, drove him out of the town. This is his hometown. They drove him out of the town and took um, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. His hometown rejects him. Think about what Jesus' ministry would have been like so that he he had to say this. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Think about what it was like for him to be so exhausted from doing ministry, having no place to, to, to rest his head. Jesus was a servant who suffered all the way. Our Saviour Jesus. His suffering didn't begin at the cross, 
but it definitely climaxed there, didn't it? Throughout his whole life, he was suffering. And if we look again to our 1 Peter 2 passage in verse 21, it says, To this you accord, because Christ suffered for you. It should be clear by now, but it's worth repeating that Jesus' suffering, climaxing on the cross, while an example, which, which we see at the end of verse 21, while an example is not only an example, he suffered and died for us. Now on Tuesday we looked at Isaiah 53, um, and one Peter, in 1 Peter he quotes that passage. In verse 24, uh, so Isaiah, no, Isaiah 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he's quoting Isaiah 53. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, um, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The work of the cross for our salvation is complete. And now that we are redeemed, we follow Jesus' footsteps, expecting suffering. Expecting hardship. Romans says just that in Romans chapter 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. And so while we follow Jesus along the suffering route, we also expect glory to come. The cross-shaped life of suffering doesn't end just with suffering, but it ends with glory. Jesus suffered in his death, but then he rose to glory. That's the pattern, suffering then glory. That's the framework. Now, why are we spending all this time talking about this? It's because it's so easy for us to move on and away from the cross. It's so easy for us to think, yes, 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 I know that now. We've spent a whole week talking about the cross. I, I get it. Look, Jesus was glorified. It's so easy to look at his glory, to look at victory. But his way there was through the cross. And we need to keep looking to Jesus. Not only Jesus glorified, but Jesus who first suffered and was crucified for, on the way, in his, in his gentle, in his humble, in his self-sacrificial love. And so let's keep looking to his glory. Yes, let's do that. But let's do that looking through the cross. Let's do that for ourselves. And let's consider that even for the ministries that we're involved with and those who we follow in ministry. You know, we're about to go into uh, semester two or trimester two. And so my question for us is, are you following the cross-shaped life? Is our evangelism and mission on campus, is it primarily about the glory of numbers? Or is it about Jesus and his cross? As we get our timetables and, and try to figure out how we want to spend our time, do we recognize that following Jesus might come at a cost to how we want to set that up? Are our timetables self-serving? How can I get the most out of uni? 
Or are they thinking about how can I serve Jesus, even if that's costly, even that means that things aren't as efficient for me? What about our goals in life, our ambitions and what we hope for? Do they follow the example of the one who has redeemed us by his blood? Our hopes and ambitions tied with with Jesus and growing his kingdom and doing so, living, following his method, going through the cross. And so do we value growth in godliness above growth in results and growth in our abilities? Do we think about following Jesus who in humility suffered and died? What about those who we follow in ministry? Maybe your staff workers or your pastors or perhaps most challengingly, those who we follow online. What's their life What's their ministry like? What is it that you follow um, them for? Why do you follow them? Is it because their, their ministry is successful and glorious? Is it because they have a great personality? It's very, um, very uh, charismatic and easy to follow? Or is it because of their cross-shaped character? The methods in what they proclaim and how they do ministry, shaped by the cross. I want to encourage you, be cautious of the minister whose life you cannot see. The Christian life belongs to Jesus, and so we don't move on from the cross. It not, the cross not only shapes the way that we live, but it also shapes the experience that we have of life today. And the reason why it does that is because uh, what the cross does is, as a turning point of everything, is that it brings in a new age. We talked about the cross changing everything, isn't it? And it does so by bringing in a new age. You see, on one hand, the cross brings in victory over, uh, over the devil, over sin and death. We saw predictions of it in Genesis, with the serpent's head being crushed. Um, In Jesus' ministry leading up to the cross, we see the powers of of darkness and, 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 and evil retreating at the face of Jesus. For example, in, in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 24, it's um, a demon speaking to Jesus. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. We see evil starting to shudder and retreat at the presence of Jesus. But we know that the decisive victory comes at the cross, isn't it? Uh, Colossians chapter chapter 2 says, He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. These are all things that we've been talking about and things that we know and understand from the cross. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. At the cross, our sins are forgiven, our condemnation removed, and evil triumphed over. It's wonderful. And what we saw in our seminars yesterday in Revelation, 
Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Christ's blood has defeated the accuser. His death is the decisive victory. His resurrection to glory is vindication. Um, That is the announcement, the proof, the demonstration that the victory is won. And we can look forward to the consummation that is the first act of his realized victory when he returns. Now this leaves us with a question. How can Jesus be victorious at the cross and at the same time we are still living a cross-shaped life of suffering? Shouldn't the cross-shaped life be victorious given that Jesus has conquered over everything? Given the picture that we saw in Revelation 5 before in that reading? How can Jesus be victorious and our lives still Face suffering. It's because while Satan has been defeated, he's not yet conceded that defeat. Now, I don't watch or know much about boxing, but I think um, boxing might help us a little bit with a maybe imperfect but helpful illustration. Um, I kind of think sometimes of the cross as like Jesus landing the knockout blow um, on Satan. And the moment that, 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 that he, he lands the punch, Satan is knocked out and it's all over. But he's struck and his body is flying in the air and he's flailing and kicking, refusing to admit, admit defeat. Um, but he has been defeated, hasn't he? And it is undeniable. And the moment of Jesus' return is the moment where Satan hits the canvas and Jesus' arm is raised in victory. He consummates that that victory. I find that as a helpful illustration to to kind of make sense of, of what's going on. I know it's not perfect, but I think it gives us the idea that we live between Jesus' victorious death and his vindicating resurrection, we live between that time and his return when the victory is consummated, between those two key moments in history. Now, um, you might call this the overlap of the ages, and some of us are familiar with this idea. Some of us, um, this is a new, new concept. Um, and so I've tried to draw um, a diagram to help us make sense of this a little bit. Um, we have time. Time begins on that side and comes across. At the beginning of time, there's creation. Um, At some point in time, Jesus died and rose again. So that's the cross in our timeline. Um, And his work on the cross, uh, vindicating the resurrection, brings in a new age. And so we've got this old age beginning with creation all the way through. Jesus' death and resurrection ushers in a new age. And then... 
At Jesus' um, return, um, the old age will be totally done away with. That's why that bottom arrow ends there. And in this area, the overlap of the ages is where we live. Some people describe it as the now and the not yet. Um, But that's where we are at. What we're looking forward to is this new age to come where there will be no more old age, when everything is consummated, that wedding feast of the Lamb, with people from every tongue, tribe and language, as we heard in Revelation 5, will be worshipping the slain Lamb. Sin and its effects from the old age will be no more. There'll be no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain. That's what is to come. But for now, we live in that overlap period. So yes, Jesus is victorious. Yes, he has conquered death. But we still experience the effects of sin and the old age. That's the tension that we need to hold, living in that overlap. We hold confidently to what Jesus has done on the cross, what he has accomplished, that he's done everything to bring in the new age. But simultaneously, we have a certain hope of what is to come, recognizing that we are still in also the old age and we're waiting for that to to end. We're waiting for sin and suffering and death to be no more. That's the tension we hold between those two. And that's what we do as we live the cross-shaped life. We understand what has been accomplished on the cross and we need, we need to make sure that we don't um, under-realise. Make sure we don't um, underestimate what has happened um, and keep living as if we live in that old age. We need to keep remembering that because of Jesus, we are people of the new age. That is, we have a certain hope. We know what is to come. That's what we're living for, eternity. We're living for this, this side of the diagram. We're not living for that side or the bottom. But while we do that, we, we, we need to be careful not to over-realise either. Um, we, need, we need to be careful not to think that it's our job to end this old age. That's what Jesus will do when he returns. And so the way that we hold this paradigm is recognize that in Christ, we are people of the new age. We need to remember our identity, who we are in Jesus, what we're longing for, who we belong to. And we at the same time recognize that as we live the cross-shaped life, we expect suffering and difficulty even now. And we look forward to that moment of glory when he returns again. And so will you pray with me? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross which brings in the new age And we thank you for the cross, which is the pattern of what our life is like. 
until the end of the old age. Father, help us to keep holding on to Jesus and his cross. Help us, through Jesus, to follow that pattern that he has laid before us and to follow his example. Give us confidence and hope in what is to come with certainty, Father. Thank you that we know that on the cross everything was accomplished and so grow our longing for a time where there'll be no more suffering or pain or sadness. And so, Father, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.